Danny Way, a rising junior at Glenwood Springs High School, will interview Dr. Grace Telford, a postdoctoral researcher at Rutgers University, studying the histories of star formation and heavy element, or metal, enrichment in nearby galaxies. She earned her Ph.D. in astronomy with a focus on data science, uh, data science methods from the University of Washington in 2019. I went to the University of Washington also. Before that, she completed um, bachelor's degrees in astrophysics and bioengineering at the University of Pittsburgh. Grace's thesis work focused on constraining past gas flows into and out of galaxies using their present-day metal content. And she'll be able to talk some more about that. Her current projects include testing the impact of recent starburst events in low-mass galaxies on their dark matter distributions and measuring the properties of the most metal-poor massive stars in the nearby universe. There were a lot of things in that little introduction that you're going to have to explain, Grace. Okay, Grace, how did you first become interested in physics or in astronomy? Well, um, as a kid, I really enjoyed watching documentaries on the Discovery Channel and things like that, but I hadn't really considered physics as a career path. Um, when I got to college, I was interested in medicine and I wanted to become a doctor, but uh, I realized that doing multiple majors was an option in college. And so I thought, okay, let's add a fun major. I'm only going to be in college once, right? And I chose astronomy. And I got very, very interested when I took my first class. And here I am. So when you first became involved in astronomy, what intrigued you the most about it? What blew my mind in that first class was the fact that when we look at galaxies in the distant universe, we're seeing them as they were billions of years ago. And so our telescopes are not only, you know, taking pictures, they're helping us to travel through time, essentially. So when we're looking at galaxies as far away as our telescopes can currently reach, we're seeing them as they were at the very beginning of the universe, 12 billion years ago. So what um, aspects of astronomy do you study now? Right now, I'm focused on dwarf galaxies in the nearby universe. So these are very low mass compared to the Milky Way galaxy that we live in. Um, that makes them interesting for a number of reasons because their gravitational pull on the stars and gas inside of them is somewhat weaker than the Milky Way's, for example. And so when energetic events happen, like when a star ends its life as a supernova explosion, these events have bigger implications for the dwarf galaxies that they live in. So they can actually drive gas out of galaxies. We call these galactic winds. And they remove gas and heavy elements from those little dwarf galaxies more efficiently than they can in higher mass galaxies. And so this gives us sort of a very sensitive way to test our understanding of how those explosive events actually affect galaxy evolution. So what are the implications of these explosive events? So supernova explosions, um, 
they produce a lot of energy and momentum that gets deposited into the gas around them, and also new heavy elements. So astronomers call these metals. We use this very generic term for every element that's heavier than helium, which chemists would hate, but this is how we talk. Um, <laughs> so um, supernovae produce these metals and some of them will mix into the gas surrounding them and make the next generation of stars more metal rich. But because supernovae are also depositing all of this energy and potentially driving gaseous outflows, a lot of those newly produced metals will be driven out of the galaxy. And so one area of my current research is understanding what fraction of newly produced metals dwarf galaxies can hang on to and how that changes as a function of their stellar mass and uh, recent starburst events in those galaxies. So how do you measure that? How do you research that? Yes. Well, um, it's actually a very complicated calculation that requires a lot of data. So it's a pretty new technique um, that's only been showing up in the literature in the last several years, I would say. Um, basically, you have to count up all of the metals that should have been produced by the stars in an entire galaxy. Um, and to do that, you need to measure its star formation history. So when all of the stars in that galaxy formed, spread out over cosmic time. And to do this, we measure um, the brightness of stars that are individually resolved in Hubble Space Telescope images of these nearby dwarf galaxies. Um, Hubble is the only instrument that has the angular resolution to actually pick out these individual stars and let us um, measure their brightness um, and how that brightness changes as a function of wavelength of light. So different kinds of stars will appear redder or bluer and that tells us something about the mass of that star and its age and its metal composition. And so using those data, we um, model the distribution of stars in uh, basically a plot of brightness as a function of color or the ratio of brightness and two different filters probing different wavelengths. And we can measure the star formation and metal enrichment history of the galaxy using this modeling technique. And so that helps us to calculate all of the metals that are currently locked up in stars in the galaxy and we also use that star formation history that we measured combined with models of how new metals are produced by different kinds of events like supernovae, but also um, evolved stars can return metals to their surroundings as well. Then we need to know how many metals are in the gas in the galaxy. And so to do that, we need a whole different kind of data. We need measurements of the total gas content, which is mostly hydrogen. So we measure um, the total cool atomic hydrogen gas in the galaxy using radio observations. And we need to know the metallicity or the ratio of metal mass to hydrogen in that gas. And that requires yet another kind of data where <laughs> we measure um, the detailed breakdown of the optical light from the galaxy as a function of wavelength and specific atomic transitions show up as uh, emission features, so very narrow spikes in that spectrum that we measure. 
And from those emission lines, we measure the metallicity. And so I've described a bunch of different pieces now, but the net result is that we have calculated the total metal mass produced and the total metal mass that's present in the stars and gas. And we calculate the ratio of those two and get this quantity we call a metal retention fraction. And so if a metal retention fraction is one, it means that the galaxy has held on to all of the metals it's ever produced. And zero would mean that it lost all of its metals and it's pure hydrogen. Um, what we actually find is for higher mass galaxies, that metal retention fraction is something like 20 to 40%. So they're losing most of the metals that they've ever produced. And in very, very low mass galaxies, um, the tiniest ones that we've ever done this calculation in, it's more like 3%. So they've lost the vast majority of their metals. And our new project, um, led by Professor Kristen McQuinn at Rutgers, who I work with closely, um, it's called GLOW, Galaxies Losing Oxygen in Winds. And we are doing this calculation for a large sample of low-mass galaxies, sort of bridging the gap between those two extremes I just described. So we're going to make the first measurement of how this changes as a function of mass for low-mass galaxies. So why is it important to study the change in mass for these galaxies? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, basically, it's helping us to understand the processes that regulate the formation of galaxies. So those gaseous outflows I've been referring to, um, they essentially serve to remove fuel for star formation from the galaxy. So that gas, had it not been ejected, would have eventually cooled and formed new stars. Um, the recent generation of cosmological galaxy formation simulations that actually take into account these, um, you know, the energetic feedback, we call it, from supernova explosions, they are able to form realistic galaxies that actually resemble real galaxies that we observe in the universe. And it turns out that that feedback um, from supernova explosions is really crucial to making realistic galaxies. Without those um, prescriptions for how supernova should affect their host galaxies, um, simulated galaxies just don't look at all like what they should. And so it's important that we are getting those feedback prescriptions right so that we can make useful predictions about how galaxy formation is working. And so measuring the metal retention fraction in real galaxies gives us a way to test these feedback prescriptions um, in really a new way that hasn't been possible before and we hope will be sort of a more stringent test of whether these feedback prescriptions are getting it right or not. So what were some previous methods? that were used to measure this feedback? That's a really good question. Um, so the metallicity of gas that I referred to earlier, the ratio of the metal content to hydrogen content, um, that has been a useful constraint on these kinds of feedback and uh, what we call chemical evolution prescriptions. Um, however, metallicity can be changed in two ways. It can be decreased by removing 
metals from the galaxy entirely, or it can be reduced if new metal-poor gas accretes onto the galaxy or falls in and mixes with the existing gas. And so um, the metal retention fraction is sort of an improvement over this um, sort of more easy to measure and widely available metallicity measurement because it breaks that degeneracy between outflows and inflows. Okay, and how did you even become interested in this field of astronomy? Like, yeah, that is also a really good question. Um, I would say I have explored a lot of different areas of astronomy. Um, and really, I started getting interested in galactic outflows in my second year of graduate school. I was taking a class that required me to do a deep reading and writing project on a topic within galaxy evolution. And I chose from a list of available topics, galactic outflows. <laughs> and I spent a quarter of graduate school um, just reading deeply about this topic and found it absolutely fascinating. So circling back to your research, what conflicts have you run into that have maybe prohibited you from moving as quickly as you would like? Ooh, what conflicts? Well, science is never a straightforward process from generation of project idea to execution of analysis to writing up the paper. Maybe some people have had that experience. I certainly never have. There's always a little bit of adventure along the way and you find unexpected things. Um, and it, it makes the process take longer than you would like. I certainly always think that my papers are going to go much faster than they do. But this is part of the great thing about science. You always find something unexpected and new. And it's really great to sort of be on that cutting edge of human knowledge, right? So I guess it's worth the extra time and effort. <laughs> So how have your studies evolved from when you first entered university to now? Besides yeah. going into thinking about medicine and... Yes, um, just within astronomy even, I would say I have gone from studying the more distant universe to the very, very nearby universe. Um, when I was an undergraduate, I was involved in some collaborations um, called Deep Two and Candles that study galaxy evolution um, in the early universe, so many billions of years ago. And when I moved to graduate school, I started working more in the nearby universe using data from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, which is a very large public database of spectra and measurements of brightness of galaxies, um, and using that to study um, chemical evolution processes. So looking at how the metallicity of gas um, scales with the stellar mass and star formation rate of galaxies. Um, and what this can tell us, again, about these inflow and outflow processes going on in really across the galaxy population. Then I got even closer to home and started looking at galaxies um, very, very close to our Milky Way. So I did a lot of work on the Andromeda Galaxy, or M31, which is our nearest massive neighbor spiral galaxy. Um, and the Milky Way and Andromeda make up 
what we call the local group, along with all of the tiny satellite galaxies that orbit them. Um, and eventually, the Milky Way and Andromeda are going to merge in about four or five billion years, which is very cool to think about. So I've done a lot of detailed work on M31, where, again, it's so close to us that we can use the Hubble Space Telescope to measure those individual stars. And so it's really um, a very powerful way to study the details that we cannot see in more distant galaxies. And so studies of M31 and other nearby low-mass galaxies help us to sort of benchmark studies of more distant galaxies where we can't ever hope to measure the individual stars. Um, could you please further describe our local group and the satellite galaxies? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so our picture of galaxy formation is that uh, Galaxies assemble in a hierarchical manner, which is a strange term, but it basically means that little galaxies merge together to form big ones. And so the Milky Way um, is a pretty big galaxy, and so over its lifetime, it has accreted a whole bunch of smaller galaxies that have essentially you know, been ripped apart, and their constituent stars and gas have become a part of the Milky Way. So um, the local group is full of low-mass satellite galaxies that have um, fallen into the gravitational potential well of the Milky Way and Andromeda, um, and that we think will eventually be accreted onto these bigger galaxies. Um, but the local group environment um, seems to affect star formation in these galaxies. So most local group low-mass galaxies are not forming stars. Um, something about the process of falling into the local group seems to shut down star formation. There are a few exceptions to this. So um, the large and small Magellanic clouds, which are bright satellite galaxies very close to the Milky Way that can be seen in the night sky in the southern hemisphere, um, these are both star-forming galaxies. So we think they've fallen into the Milky Way's gravitational potential fairly recently and are interacting with each other in a way that triggers um, new star formation. So uh, there is a variety of galaxies in the local group, but um, really what I am studying right now is galaxies that sit just outside of that local group boundary. So they're free from the additional complexity of being in a dense environment. And we see a lot more star forming dwarf galaxies outside the local group. And so that's where my interest lies in the recent star formation histories of galaxies and resolving individual massive stars, trying to learn about feedback processes that way. So do these lower mass galaxies also form black holes like the Milky Way could because it has a higher mass? Or is that mostly just? Yeah. Also a really good question. Um, so the Milky Way and other massive galaxies harbor supermassive black holes in their centers. That's what you're asking about, right? Um, so these are thought to be in all massive galaxies. It remains unclear whether they are in all low mass galaxies as well, 
but it's actually a really active area of research right now. People are putting a lot of observational effort into trying to find these things in low-mass galaxies. The problem is that they're really hard to detect um, because basically there's a what we call a scaling relationship between the mass of the supermassive black hole and the mass of the galaxy that it lives in. And bigger black holes are basically easier to detect. And so when you go down to very low mass galaxies, the black holes that we think should be living inside of them become low mass and really hard to find. Um, so our current picture, I would say, based on galaxy formation simulations and our understanding of how these supermassive black holes should form throughout cosmic time is that, yeah, we think there should be large, maybe intermediate mass black holes in these low mass dwarf galaxies, but it's still an observationally open question. So would there be any reason why just the uh, more massive galaxies would form black holes instead of the lower mass? Not that I'm aware of, no. I My picture is certainly that we would expect to find these sort of intermediate mass black holes throughout the low mass galaxies. Um, there are different predictions from, you know, different simulation groups and different theory groups about how these black holes form in the early universe. So what are the seeds that will grow into the supermassive black holes that we observe today? Um, and how do they merge over cosmic time? And so I think there are open questions about how many of these black holes we should see in galaxies of any mass, really, um, and how frequently we should expect them to merge and how often we should expect to find them in the very centers of galaxies and how often they should be sort of wandering around a little outside of the middle of the potential well. So there's a lot of open questions, but I do, my feeling is that there should be intermediate mass black holes. So as a female scientist, do you have any advice for um, young girls aspiring to be within the STEM field as well? Yeah. Um, I mean, I would really say just know that you belong just as much as anyone else and never let anyone make you feel otherwise. Now, you won't necessarily be in a position like that, but um, you may find yourself surrounded by not a lot of other women, and that is okay. You can interact with any and all of your colleagues and you you definitely belong there. Um, for young students who are getting ready to go to college, I would say the biggest thing to do uh, to sort of move along the scientific career path as efficiently as possible is to get involved in research. And um, it can be a little opaque how exactly one goes about doing that, but honestly, it really comes down to uh, sending an email or walking into a professor's office and just asking if you can do research in that professor's group. And I know I found this intimidating, just needing to ask for things um, from a stranger, but that is truly how it works and how you gain experience. And it is expected. Professors are happy to take on undergraduate researchers. It's part of their jobs. And it's a really, really great way to learn more about the field you're interested in, see if you actually like doing it, and um, build your 
you know, resume and get ready to apply for other academic positions and maybe graduate school if you decide to go that route. I would also encourage aspiring scientists to explore widely. Um, you may have a particular topic that you're very passionate about and want to pursue, and that's great, but I certainly didn't feel that way. I have dabbled in many areas of science. Um, I'm interested in human bodies and you know, machine learning algorithms and how galaxies evolve, and I have explored all of those things in research. And I think it's worked out pretty well for me, um, and it's helped me figure out what I do like and what I don't like, and so, you know, Students shouldn't feel constrained to only focus on one particular thing. College is a time to explore and learn. Thank you so much, Grace Telford and Danny Way. Grace Telford from Rutgers University and Danny from Glenwood Springs High School. Um, and that's a perfect segue into a few more comments about our Gopher program here at the Aspen Center for Physics. This is a program designed to introduce uh, students who are interested in the STEM field to actually talk with physicists who will give them wonderful advice about how to approach um, their professors in college, about how to explore their interests. And we really would love to have more students from the, all of the Valley's high schools uh, participate in our Gopher program. So I'm just giving a pitch there. And um, again, thank you, Danny. Thank you, Grace. Tune in to Radio Physics on the fourth Tuesday of every month at 4.30 on KDNK Radio for the Rowing Fork Valley in Carbondale. And for more information about our events at the center, you may visit aspenphys.org or give me a call Patty Fox at the Aspen Center for Physics. Thank you, and you'll hear from us next month. <laughs>